Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with the creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Ann Fisherworth, the 2023 Governor's Arts Award winner for Excellence in Literature and Poetry. Ann Fisherworth is a poet, scholar, and environmental educator who has lived all over the world. She retired recently after 33 years in the Mississippi University of Mississippi's English department where she taught seminars and workshops in the MFA program in poetry and directed the interdisciplinary minor in environmental studies. Her seventh book of poems, Paradise is Jagged, is forthcoming from Terrapin Books this year on February 1st. And her sixth book is The Bones of Winter Birds, and her fifth, a poetry and photography collaboration with Maud Schuyler Clay, entitled Mississippi. Anne also co-edited the groundbreaking eco-poetry anthology and is a senior fellow of the Black Earth Institute. Welcome, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us today, and congratulations on your Governor's Arts Award. Thanks so much. It's pretty exciting to be here. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here, and we're, we're together here in the studio in Jackson. Um, your work is very much influenced by Mississippi, by its people, its landscapes, and I do want to talk about your work in just a minute, um, but I, I think of you as a Mississippi poet, and yet you're not originally from here. Where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in the U.S. Army. Okay. I was born in D.C. My dad was career Army. And then when I was a baby, my mom joined him in Wetzlar, Germany, where he was stationed right after the war. Then we moved to Pennsylvania and then Japan and then Berkeley, California. Um, I went to college in Southern California. Then I moved to Belgium for three years to teach at an international school, back to Claremont, California, eventually to Virginia, and then to Mississippi. So I've kind of bounced all around. Yeah. And I I read in an interview that you once thought you would never live in Mississippi. Uh, Well, this is true. Growing up in Berkeley in the 1960s, um, you know, I was pretty interested in the civil rights movement. I was following it passionately. And um, the two places that I thought I would never, ever, ever live are Mississippi and Alabama. And yet you're now here you are. You're so rooted here in Mississippi. Um, were you was writing a part of your life growing up? Yeah, well, I'm the child of an English teacher. I'm the sister of an English teacher. I'm the wife of an English teacher. I'm the mother of an English teacher. Oh, you know, wow. there's kind of a genetic pattern there. The, the sister-in-law of an English teacher. We're all readers. I've been reading my whole life. And um, my daughter, Jessica, is a poet. But mostly we're um, readers rather mm-hmm. than writers in my family, librarians, readers, teachers. And when did you start writing poetry? Oh, well, I wrote some really bad poetry in junior high, you know, when mm-hmm. you're assigned to in school. And then I stopped. And then in, um, let's see, ah, when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, 
I wrote poetry because you'll do anything not to write a dissertation. As a procrastination you know? technique. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I wrote some poems. Only one of those has ever been published. Mm. Um, and then I stopped again for about 10 years. And then when we moved here, I got tenure, which is, of course, in the life of an ac- academic, a huge hurdle and a huge relief, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I sat in on a workshop taught by Alita Shirley, who is no longer alive, but she was a wonderful poet, and she was adjuncting at the University of Mississippi. And I just took the vow. I just was so thrilled that day. I'm like, okay, there's no turning back, you know. Yeah. So that was probably, oh, I don't know, 1989, 1991, something like that. And I put aside the book that I'd been writing, an academic book <clears throat> about Willa Cather. Hmm. And I started writing poetry and I started, you know, compiling rejection slips and writing a lot of bad poetry. And then eventually things started to happen. So my first book of poems only came out in 2003, the beginning of 2003, Valentine's Day. Hmm. And there's kind of a nice story about that. Uh, it's called Blue Window. And I had a Fulbright in Sweden at the time in Uppsala, and I was teaching. And in Sweden, you can't just walk into an apartment building. You have to have a code to get into the foyer, you hmm. know. So my husband sat in the lobby for hours waiting for the guy to come with my box of books. And we knew that it would be delivered on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and so he got it. And then he took me out to dinner. And this adorable waiter who spoke no English bought my first book the first copy of my first book. So that's my story about Blue Window. Oh, that's a beautiful story. It was just great. It was just great. And then since then, I've, you know, I still write some, a little bit of academic stuff and some familiar essays, but mostly it's poetry that I write. Yeah. And what were the the poems in your first first book of poetry about? What were? Pretty much the same as everybody's first book of poetry, which is, you know, your life. Mm -hmm. Um, The first poem, Blue Window, is about an experience that I had walking home one day when I was about 13 from my piano teacher's house. And my dad was sick. He died when I was 15 of brain cancer, but he Mm. was already sick. And I was walking home, and I just had such a violent feeling of longing to enter the kitchen of uh, a house that I walked by, you know? It's like it was kind of dinner time, and I could see the lights on in their kitchen and people going about their lives, and I just passionately had this longing to kind of knock on the door and say, you know, here I am, you know? Hmm. So, I mean, Blue Window has a lot of different kinds of poems in it, but it's 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 autobiographical mostly. Yeah. And so you were writing poetry before you came to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Did you... Did you come to Mississippi to teach at the University of Mississippi? Yeah, yeah, I did. So actually, this is kind of funny, too. Um, I had studied a lot of poetry as an undergrad and as a grad student. And I wrote my dissertation on the American poet William Carlos Williams. Mm. And then when I was at Virginia, which is where I taught before we came here, I was teaching women's studies because... That was in really short order at that time at the University of Virginia, you know. So I was doing feminist theory and women's studies. So when I went on the market to come here, it was pretty much as a scholar of women's lit. And I was writing a book on Willa Cather, and I was doing all this French feminist theory and so on and so forth, you know, reading theory. And then um, the great thing about my job at the University of Mississippi is that they kept letting me reinvent myself. Hmm. So 
I was teaching women writers, you know, um, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte and Virginia Woolf and Willa Cather and people like that. And then I also started segueing into more and more classes about poetry, especially American poetry, but also the English lyric from the Middle Ages on to the present time, you know, and so on. And then eventually we created Creative Writing Track, and I started being permitted to teach those. Um, and then eventually, eventually, we were able to create an MFA program, and I became part of that MFA faculty. Um, Which is and an incredible also, faculty, I have yeah, to say. It's a yeah, it's a pretty amazing faculty. And then also I started doing a lot to um, help to create the environmental studies program. So I started doing a lot of that, you know, so... That was a great thing. I mean, I just think that I was so lucky as far as my job that I could keep it alive for myself by following my passions and my interests and continually learning and continually teaching what I really cared about. I think that's that's a the part of a career that makes it that keeps it interesting is yeah. the ability to reinvent yourself. And um, I, I feel like as a poet, you you touch on so many different themes Um place being one of them, sense of place. Was that always a major theme in your work? Or did you find that, you know, after moving to Mississippi and really making a home here that that well, became stronger? Place has always been really important. Um, I was influenced a lot by William Carlos Williams. The, you know, he spent his whole life as a doctor, as well as a poet. And he spent his whole life living in Rutherford, New Jersey. And he's very much a poet of place. Hmm. Um, very grounded, very rooted in not only the land, but also the human community of where he lives. And that's an ethic and an aesthetic that really appeals to me, the sense of connection, and also the sense of, in a sense, responsible interaction, you know, um, and a sense of participation and community. So it is true that I tend to be kind of introverted and very autobiographical, you know, but it's also true that I'm fascinated by, I mean, I've traveled so much yeah. and I have such vivid and strong memories of all the different places that I've lived. We also lived in Switzerland for a year and I've traveled to many different countries, you know, so you get a sense of the particularities of place. Um, and also one great thing about Mississippi that was what Maud's and my book Mississippi was all about is voice, mm -hmm. this incredible oral richness, this oral culture, the different ways that people have of expressing things, you know? Like I remember when I was teaching in Belgium, there was a teacher who taught there for a year who said, Ma could. And I'm like, what? What? You know, a mutt could do that? I'm like, I never heard that before. Mm -hmm. And then when we came here and people say, I could carry you, you know? Um, and I'm like, does that mean you're going to like sling me over your shoulder? It's just all this amazing language that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's such a richness, for instance, in reading Southern writers. Um, and so when I was doing my book with Maud, she would send me these photographs. And then I could just listen. And these voices would like pour through me bits and pieces of story that I'd heard or life stories that the photographs would trigger, even though they did not have people in them, you know? Um, so that's kind of a long answer, but yeah, place has always been super important to me. And obviously as an environmentalist, place is of the absolute utmost importance to me. What we do as our human inhabitation on earth with the land, the water, the mm -hmm. air, the creatures, the trees. 
Well, I want to go back to the the book that you co-wrote or collaborated on with with Mod Scholar Clay Mississippi. How did that the idea for a photography poetry book come about? <laughs> we each have a different story about that. <laughs> I used to see her, you know, I live in Oxford and she lives down the Delta, but she would come up for different things and she and I are <clears throat> mutual friends with Beth Ann Fennel- Fennelly and Tommy Franklin and a bunch of other people. So I'd see her and I maintain that she would say, we should do something sometime. And she maintains that I would say, we should do something sometime. (laughs) So in any case, eventually both of us realized, you know, we're not getting any younger. We should do something. So she started just sending me um, photographs through email. And she and I are both not real technologically proficient, but I would get these photographs and I would just look at them. And She sent me many more photographs than I wrote poems for, but some of them were so haunting and so evocative that I would just look at them and then I would start hearing poems, Hmm. you know, hearing voices. And it was the most wonderful creative process. It didn't really take much pain. Sometimes, you know, you're pulling your hair out because it's like there's no language rattling around in your head. But this was just like... You know, you just hear these voices and you write them down and then maybe you fiddle with them a little bit. I'm in an online writing workshop and my workshop, you know, colleagues would look at something and say, yeah or no or change this or whatever. But gradually and then I wrote one and I thought, well, I really love this, but one poem with one photograph is not going to go anywhere. It's got to be a book. Mm -hmm. So keep them coming, you know. So eventually you need to have about 48 poems to be a book. And eventually there were that many. And then we started publishing in journals. You know, there were a few journals that would publish them with 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 the photograph and the poem. It was hard to find a publisher because everybody who saw the book really loved it. But publishing photography in a nice way, is really expensive. It's expensive, yeah. Um, and we had a couple of people interested in doing just the poems without the photos, but I'm like, uh-uh, no, this is, this is the project. This is the visual and the linguistic project as it is, you know. So eventually, Wings Press was willing to... Um, do the project, and they did a really beautiful hardcover book. Well, I'm glad you brought your vision to life because it's, it is an incredible book. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes at the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today, I'm talking with Governor Arts Award recipient Ann Fisherworth. The Governor Arts Award ceremony will be held on February 2nd at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. So before the break, Anne, we were talking a little bit about your books and how you've lived all over the world. Um, and you mentioned that you you had Fulbrights in both Sweden and Switzerland. How did you, what made you decide um, to do a Fulbright? Hmm. Um, when I was in college, I had a professor whom I liked very much who'd had a couple of Fulbrights, and he talked about it as something that they loved, you know, so I was aware of it. And then, um, again, once I got tenure, I'm a travel junkie. I, as an army brat, I really love to travel. And so I checked into the Fulbright program. My husband and I had had a trip to Greece and I thought, oh wow, there's a Fulbright to Thessaloniki. Well, I applied for that one, but I didn't get it. But then I got a phone call um, a couple of days later saying, so do you want to go to Switzerland? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, you know. So um, my husband and I and our two sons spent the year 94, 95, the academic year in Fribourg, Switzerland, which was just amazing. Um, it was great. I was teaching American lit and Southern lit and contemporary American poetry. And I was teaching to, of course, in Switzerland, there are four official languages English, French, German, and Roman. No, I'm sorry, French, German, Italian, and Romance. Hmm. And I was teaching in English to students who sometimes did not speak very much English hmm. and had very little sense of the geography of the United States. So each time I would begin by drawing a, a map of the United States, which got more and more basic until finally it was a box with two legs, you know, for <laughs> California and Florida. And I would kind of situate, okay, like Faulkner is down here, you know, Willie Cather is here, you know, William Carlos Williams is here. And, um, that was great. I loved my students. I loved it. Just absolutely loved it. And I loved, we made some good friends among um, both, well, mostly actually other people who were professors there who were from England or the United States, and then a couple of people from Switzerland as well. And we just had a really terrific year because it was so incredibly beautiful. From our apartment, we could see sometimes Mont Blanc, oh, you wow. know. And you could leave and walk out the back door of our, of our apartment and be on trails van der Wegen that led into one another so that you really never had to get off them, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and my husband is a big walker, so he loved that. When we came home, there was a certain day that all four of us sat on the couch and cried. It's like we just I was going to say, was it to difficult to, to come home? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. And then Sweden, Uppsala, I was the, um, what was it, Distinguished Chair in American Studies in 2002-2003 at Uppsala, uh, Sweden, which is about an hour away from Stockholm. And that was also a really fascinating year. I'm going back there in February, and I'm pretty excited. Oh. I have a very good friend there um, who, you know, we got to be really good friends when I was there. So I'll be staying with her and her husband and giving a couple of talks in Stockholm and Uppsala. And I'll be interested to see it again. The weather will be absolutely horrible. But oh, it'll be very cold. Tough it out. Yep. <laughs> yep. What was it like <laughs> teaching Southern literature and, and American literature, I guess, to, to students who had very little knowledge they of it? They were fascinated, mm -hmm. absolutely fascinated. On the other hand, the reading assignments had to be extremely short 
just imagine trying to teach, you know, um, excerpts from Light in August or excerpts right. from, you know, some other Faulkner novel, The Sound and the Fury, um, to a bunch of people <clears throat> for whom everything was foreign. It's but hard even for it's native for, English speakers. It is. It is. It is. Faulkner. It absolutely is. But it was. Um, it was just such a <clears throat> such an exciting experience. It was really wonderful. And the students themselves were, oh, and one fun thing that we did, so my husband has done a lot of acting as hmm. a kid and then in college and then in grad school. And then we did some together in Virginia. And um, there was this student in Switzerland whose last name was Kowalski, Alex Kowalski. And no, I'm sorry, that wasn't his last name, but he was in love with Stanley Kowalski. And so he wanted to start a, a theater reading group so that he could play Stanley Kowalski. So we'd have kids over and we'd sit on the floor in our apartment and read plays out loud, you know. And so we did a lot of that. And that was just a really great um, exchange, a really great yeah. kind of friendly situation. So there were a lot of good, good times that we had. Oh, that's so great. Um, and when you came home from each of those experiences, did they shape your, you know, your creative life in, in any yeah, way? Yeah, I didn't write about Switzerland, but I did. I wrote a whole book about Sweden hmm. called Carter Marina, which was sort of a day book. It's a book that came into existence completely without my planning it. You know, so here again, it's useful to have a daughter who's a poet. Because Uppsala is the oldest university in Scandinavia, and it has this incredible library, the Carolina Reda Viva, um, which has priceless, priceless manuscripts, including oh, wow. the oldest, quote, accurate map of the northern lands called the Carter Marina. By, quote, accurate, I mean that the lands are kind of the right shape and so on. But there are ogres and trolls and dragons with horns and, you know, things yeah, like this, right? right? Because it was made during an era when um, people didn't have the same sense of borders between what we now would say was the supernatural and the natural, you know? Mm. And so everything was kind of miraculous and strange. Um, so I told her, and they had this map. There's only two original copies of the map and one of them is in the Carolina Redaviva. And it's big. It's on a wall. It's nine panels. It's big, you know. So I was sitting on a day, a kind of cold, gray, wintry day, sitting on the floor looking at this map. And I, I, I said to my daughter, well, maybe I'll write a poem about it. And she said, what do you mean a poem? Write poems about it. <laughs> so I sat down and I dutifully started writing. And the first line of this book is, first look at the bear. You know, because there's this bear that's perched on an ice floe, and he's got this huge salmon in his teeth, and he's snarling at another bear or something like that. And it just kind of unfolded as the year unfolded. Hmm. It was a difficult year in my life for personal reasons, very personal reasons. But it was also um, a really beautiful year and a year of much discovery, you know. So it's a kind of – that's my most experimental book, and it's a book-length mm, – it's got the qualities of a novel, but it's got all these different narrative threads. And Peter, my husband, is also a good Latinist. So he could translate the Latin text that accompanies the map, which has things like, you know, uh, and here are the monsters that devour flaming men. I mean, I'm making that up, but uh -huh. that's about how weird it is, you know. <laughs> um, and they, and they, and they, I can't remember even 
And so that accompanies it and that goes along with it in these little snippets and things. And then we were also doing some traveling. So there's stuff about that and there's stuff about other people and there's stuff about memory and this great loss that I experienced that came back flooding back into my life Hmm. from the years when I was like 18, 19 years old, you know, and that came flooding back in. And that's the very personal part of the book. Um, So you can never tell what lies ahead. Yeah. You know, it's like it's just T.S. Eliot says at one point, fair forward, voyager, not farewell, but fair forward. Hmm. And I love that line because that's really the choice that you have is to fare forward. Well, one quote that I read in an interview that you said, and, and maybe you were quoting a friend too, you said, the way to become a more interesting, better writer is to become a more interesting person, um, which I think is just, for any writers out there, that's probably the best piece of advice, to live an interesting life, become an interesting person. Can you talk more about that idea? I love that. Apparently, that's something that the poet David Baker said to Beth Ann Fennelly. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. apparently. Um, and I, mean, I he came wasn't to it via Anne Fisherworth. Yeah, so. <laughs> he wasn't talking about her, but he was saying that a student had said to him, my poems are so boring. What should I do? And he said, be a more interesting person, you know, <laughs> which I just think is hysterically funny. Uh-huh. But it's also really true. It's really true. Uh, we all do have a tendency to cover the same ground in our lives over and over and over and over and over. And it's hard to shake that up and get outside, you know. And I have always found that just looking around, traveling is a great way to um, expand that and kind of shake some of that loose, you know. Did traveling abroad to probably one of the places that's maybe most different from Mississippi is, you know, Scandinavia, um, did it put home in perspective for you? I'm not sure what in perspective means. Or in a different, did it change your perspective in any way? No, I mean, Mississippi to me is, see, I mean, I've only lived here 34 years. It's still a new place in some ways. Because it's so different from places that mm-hmm. I had lived before. So in some ways, it's very much home. But I'm also half a Northern Californian, you know, because those were really my formative years, my age 10 till after college. Um, and a lot of my political thinking came from those years, a lot of my taste in movies and foods and so on, you know. So. I, I'm fascinated by Mississippi, and I'm still learning stuff all the time. Yeah. You know? I mean, teaching at Parchman really shook me up. Yeah. T- talk about that a little bit. Well, Patrick Alexander, my colleague in the English department, came here with a Ph.D. from Duke in um, incarceration studies. And he and Otis Pickett, uh, who was a, a, at the time with the Center for S- the Study of Southern Culture and now has moved on, Started, they started the um, Prison to College Pipeline program at Parchman to try to give incarcerated people college credit and just mm. simply stimulate their minds, you know, because there's such a lack of educational opportunity and such a tragic situation for people who are released and um, may not have much in the way of job possibility or educational possibility, you know. So the minute that Patrick interviewed with us, I went up to him after his talk and I said, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. Because in the 60s, I'd been reading all this educational theory and so on, you know. And eventually I was able to teach twice with him at Parchman. 
in the pre-release program. So I taught creative writing, both poetry writing and life writing. <clears throat> and we read a bunch of stuff and people wrote, I've just started working with one guy who's now released and he's wanting to write his story of his life. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty short so far, but he can do it, you know. Yeah. But I mean, man, I learned a lot from doing that. I really did. And I've written about that a fair amount in, um, well, there's a long poem in my new book um, called The Astonishing Light, and which is about teaching at Parchment. And then there have been other poems that have appeared in some journals and stuff that was a very good um, eye-opener for me. Broke my heart. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with Governor Arts Award recipient Ann Fisherworth. And before the break, we were talking about your experience teaching creative writing in Parchman. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that was like working with the students there who were also prisoners? Yes, sure, absolutely. And also working with Patrick. Patrick was wonderful. He was so dedicated and so um, inspiriting, you know. And um, the students in those classes would say, this is the best three hours of the week. They would wow. say, you know, there would be students who would show up the third week having read every book for the whole semester, and they'd bring all the books every time, you know. And it was very, very nice. Actually, my publisher, Trinity University Press, sent free copies of the Eco Poetry Anthology mm. for each student. So that's 425 pages of poetry from... Walt Whitman to the present time, you know, um, and we read other books as well. Um, their favorite poet was Lucille Clifton, which is just ah. absolutely delicious to me. You know, this wonderful, wonderful. Collectively, that was their favorite. That was their favorite poet. That was their favorite poet. And she just is so great. And some of the students would write, they had to write for me 15 pages. A couple of them wrote 115 they just were so on fire, and they would write these incredibly moving narratives. Like there's one man who's now released who had been incarcerated when he was 18 or 19 years old for killing somebody who was robbing him of money of overpay that he was supposed to be paid. Mm -hmm. And he, um, it turned out he had to be tried in Mississippi because the man he had killed was High Place Ku Klux Klan um, in Louisiana. He spent 42 years in Parchman, although he'd been eligible for parole much oh earlier. Gosh. And that's because his whole family had died and he had nowhere to go. So he was a devout Catholic, and 
I'm telling you this because he's written it all, you know, and he's he's famous. He's like on Facebook about it and so on. He's very open about it. So there was a priest who would come and visit him, and they got into what I call dueling Bibles. Like this student would quote to him from the Bible about how he should never be forgiven, and the priest would quote about how all could be forgiven. And finally, this student broke down in tears and accepted that he too could be forgiven, you know. Mm. And so now he's out. He um, is connected with the church. He has a girlfriend. He's like in his 60s, but he has a meaningful life, Mm. you know. Um, So there are stories like that. There are stories that end up, let's say, after great suffering, happily. But then there are also stories that just haunt me. And, of course, I was only ever in the pre-release part, which is for the people who, most of whom will be getting out pretty soon. There were a few who were in for a long time. And you never ask why somebody's there. You know, if they want to offer that, that's one thing. But you don't say, oh, hi, how are you? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, but Patrick and I kind of figured that um, it might be that the people who were there for a long time were of such, had become of such good moral character that they could kind of help, you know, Hmm. with the other younger people. I am so glad that Parchman was was supporting these educational programs because they have really nothing but good to offer to people who find themselves in that situation. So I just am so encouraged that I, I hear that there are more, you know, reading and books programs and so on that are being developed, and I think that's wonderful. And is that program, the, the prison-to-college pipeline, is that ongoing? It is. Um, I believe so, yes. It's just that... Um, Everybody wants to teach in it, you know? And huh. so, I mean, I've had uh, my colleague Jay Watson, my colleague Eva Camps. I think Beth Ann is going to do it in about a year or so. And we all are just so eager to do it, you know? I would go back in a minute, but it's not my turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to dramatically switch gears. And I learned that you recently completed an uh, an artist residency in Alaska. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's called Story Knife. It's outside Homer, Alaska, on Kachemak Bay, across from the Kenai Peninsula. Wow. And it is the most amazing experience in the world. I was there for the month of October. It's They have six women writers at a time. Hmm. And each person has her own little cabin. And then there's a central building, you know, which has a library and a kind of sitting room and a wonderful, wonderful dining area. Amazing cook, amazing director of the program, Erin Coughlin Hollowell. And I can't even begin to explain how beautiful it was to be there. I could look out my window and see six or three live volcanoes across the bay. Oh, my goodness. Um, They were snow-covered at the moment. They were not spewing lava. But, you know, and you could see the bay, the water, eagles, spruce trees. Uh, we, I finally saw a moose. <laughs> I finally saw several moose. I was so determined to see a moose while I was there. And, indeed, they are quite wonderful. Um, and the silence and just the time and the solitude. I mean, the other women were, were friendly, but you're mostly by yourself, mm-hmm. you know, as it should be. So I started doing some writing there about being there, you know. So that's that's the little bit of new stuff that I have. 
Yeah. Did you? How did you find out about the program? Were you invited to? Oh to gosh, how did I find out? You know, <clears throat> I can't remember how I found out, but just online, you mm-hmm. know, people. Oh, I know. I I have two friends who had gone there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to go. And then because of COVID, it it had to shut down for a year, and then you know, another at it again. It's pretty new. It's only about four years old, I think. Mm. But I absolutely recommend women writers to apply to it. It's just so beautiful. And is that going to be material for a a, a new book, you think? Not a new book, but I have some poems about it. Okay. You know, yeah. That's really fantastic. Who knows what a new, a new book would have in it. <clears throat> well, you do have a forthcoming book. I do. Being published on... February 1st of this year, and I'm, I'm holding it in my hands right now. It's beautiful. It's called Paradise is Jagged, which is, I'm in love with that title. How did, can you talk <laughs> a little bit about where that title comes from? Yeah, I can, I think. I thought it was Ezra Pound. I thought it was a phrase by him, but I cannot find it. My publisher cannot find it. My husband cannot find it. I found it, okay, I had to clean out my office after I retired, and that was two months of slogging through <laughs> billions of pieces of paper because I'm a pack rat, and on a little scrap of paper, I found the, the phrase, Paradise is Jagged, and mm. I thought, okay, that's great, that's my title, but I don't know where it came from. I thought it came from um, the cantos, you know, because... Some of Pound's most beautiful lines are about paradise. I have tried to speak paradise. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. Wow. It just fell as a reward of having to clean out of my office. And is that uh, also the title of one of the poems in the book? There is a poem called Jagged Paradise. Okay. Which is a backward abecedarian. Okay. Ah. So an abecedarian, do you know what that is? I do. It's where a poem follows the letters. Yeah, right, the of a... first letter of each line goes A and then B and then C. So I have a true abecedarian called Transformations, and then I have a broken abecedarian that starts halfway through and then cycles around, and then I have a backward abecedarian, and the backward abecedarian is called Jagged Paradise. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did Those you, were fun to write. Did you set out wanting to write an abecedarian? Yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah, I did, because I think it's kind of a fun form. And um, frankly, if you're going to keep writing anything that generates language is good, you know? So from time to time, you kind of give yourself a a little project, mm-hmm. a haibun or a zuihitsu or um, an abecedarian, something like that, prose poem, you know? And so one, one thing that I'm really interested in um, – is your work that is at the intersection of poetry and environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And you were director of the minor of environmental studies at Mm -hmm. University of Mississippi. Um, You co-edited a groundbreaking anthology of eco-poetry in 2013. How did you become interested in environmental writing? Well, there again, I read Thoreau as an undergrad, and I stayed up all night reading Walden. It just tripped me out. It hmm. just absolutely blew my mind. Um, and then my husband, as I said earlier, loves to walk. And we lived on a farm for the first years of our married life. And we would spend a lot of time walking in the woods, walking in the fields, and so on. Um, and then I started, I just 
have always paid a lot of attention to political issues, environmental issues, and so on. And the interest just grew. Moving to Mississippi, there's, it's such a beautiful state, but it's also a state that has suffered so much environmental damage, um, along with you know human damage of slavery and poverty. Um, and there's so much that's rich and and fertile and fructive about the state, but also so much to notice in the way of what one wishes were different, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that, I mean, the environment is the issue of our times. Yep. It is the incredibly urgent, pressing issue of our times. And so working to start the environmental studies minor and then to help it grow, and I'm glad that it seems to be thriving now, now that I'm not involved with it any longer, um, was just a great passion for me. You know, and it's been great um, teaching the students that have been interested in that and that have gone on to do incredible things after they graduated. Did you coin the term eco-poetry or is that? Okay. No, I didn't. And I don't even remember who made it up, Uh but it's been around eco-lit, eco-poetry, eco-studies, you know, all that stuff. What made you decide to create an anthology? Oh, my goodness. I guess so. My One of my really good friends is Laura Gray Street, and we've done a number of uh, collaborative things, and we've traveled to conferences together and so on. And we just really—oh, I know, yeah. Um, it's probably too long a story to tell, but somebody asked us, do you want to do an anthology? Oh, yes, I know. Somebody from a certain press came to Oxford and said— do you have anything we'd like to maybe consider publishing something by you? And I'm like, you guys don't publish poetry, but maybe you'd like to do an anthology. And she's like, sure. So that went through various stages and that didn't work out. And then Barbara Rass at Trinity University Press said, yes, I will, Mm -hmm. which is great. And so we thought we were doing a 100-page anthology and it grew to 425 pages. And Robert Haas, the amazing poet, ex-poet laureate of the United States, suggested that we do a section of poetry from um, Whitman to about 1960. He said this would be so good for teachers, just have, you know, 30 pages that they could teach in their high school classes. That section grew to 130 pages. And um, it's just, it's like, how can you leave out stuff like Sunday morning? Or how can you leave out, you know, these amazing poems by Robinson Jeffers or by Elizabeth Bishop or whatever, you know? And so... The book grew and grew and grew over six years, and that's how it happened. What a fascinating project. Yeah, it was great. Too. It was great. And, I mean, there's so much more. We could so easily do a new edition. So can you talk a little bit about teaching environmental studies and, and what what kind of work were your students producing or what kind of – how did you guide them through that? That line of thinking. Oh my goodness! Well, I taught the Great Way, or I'm sorry, the Gateway. That's an interesting Freudian slip. The Great Way. <laughs> I taught the Gateway course, Environmental Studies 101, which was Humanities and the Environment, and I would choose a pretty eclectic set of readings: some fiction, some nonfiction. Elizabeth Colbert, um, Aldo Leopold, sometimes, sometimes Melville, sometimes Thoreau, whatever, and then some film. And we would do some field trips. I would take students out to Magnolia Grove, which is the Thich Nhat Hanh Zen Buddhist Monastery outside mm. Batesville. And we would go to Home Place Pastures, a sustainable meat farm up by Como. 
and um, people would come in and give guest talks, you know, and so on. So it was a very interdisciplinary course, and it and students would keep nature journals and they would keep reading journals and they would do oral projects based on something of their own choosing, some environmental project of their own choosing. Um, and they would turn in research projects and so on. So that was just a course that was always changing, always evolving according to what the issues were, what the students were interested in. Sometimes they would work collaboratively and sometimes just doing individual work, you know. That was a lot of fun to teach. And then I also taught nature writing, which was a combination, a hybrid course of their own creative writing and then reading different nature texts or nature essays by different people. Um, and I taught eco-poetry and, you know, just a number of different things. Yeah. I would love to take it a was class fun. from you, though. I know you're now retired. <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. Well, in our last 30 seconds, um, is there anything that's capturing your attention, your creative attention these days? I am so excited about the Governor's Awards. That's what's capturing my attention. And, you know, doing publicity for my new book, Paradise is Jagged, um, it seems like a really rich, wonderful time to kind of gather things together and um, just see what happens next, see what I write next. I don't know. We'll and where see. can people order that book, by the way? Is, uh, can it, is it available for Terrapin pre-order? Terrapin Books, T-E-R-R-A-P-I-N, Terrapin Books, or it's also listed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, they could also order it through Square Books or through Lemuria, any place. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.